Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. Welcome to another of our Green Team series, this Shemitah year focus uh, and a really wonderful opportunity for us to learn this time from Rabbi Nina Beth Carden. It's my pleasure to introduce her. She's going to walk us through some learning based on work that she has been doing uh, in a realm that I will let her introduce herself in just a moment. Rabbi Nina Beth Carden is a community rabbi who works at the intersection of faith and sustainability. She makes her home in Baltimore, Maryland, where she founded and led the Baltimore Orchard Project, a food and land justice organization dedicated to building healthier connections between people, food, place, and each other. She is a founder and director of the Maryland Campaign for Environmental Human Rights, an initiative that is working toward a state constitutional provision that would protect all Marylanders' rights to a healthful environment and ensure the pursuit of public justice and environmental justice. She is currently on the board of Waterkeepers Chesapeake, a coalition of independent programs working to maintain and restore the health of the waters and the communities of the Chesapeake and coastal bays. We are so lucky and happy to have you with us to walk us through some of the work that you have been doing in regards to sustainability and the world and its intersection with Judaism. So welcome. And the floor, so to speak, is yours. All right. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here and to share some of the work that um, we've been doing. Um, Let me begin by giving you a little bit of background. So several years ago, probably about four or five years ago, uh, my husband and I, my husband, Rabbi Avram Reiser, who was on the Committee of Jewish Law and Standards of the conservative movement. uh, So he and I were um, lamenting the fact that the movement did not yet have a tshuva, a responsum, you know, so as it were, a legal opinion about uh, the conservative movements and Judaism's relationship to, the, to sustainability and to the environment. We felt we needed guidance, you know, halachic guidance, legal guidance, moral guidance, ethical guidance um, to ground um, the, the, the Jewish voice, especially the conservative Jewish voice, in this urgent need to create a sustainable world. So we approached um, CJLS, the uh, Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, and said, please put a call out for people who would like to write a tshuva, a response on sustainability. So be careful what you put out there, because it often comes back to you. And like a year or two later, um, the committee turned to us and said, hey, would you guys, you know, like to write this? Um, So, uh, so we, we did my world, um, steeped in sustainability and environmentalism uh, was a con- contribution. And my husband's 25 years or so on the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, he's a sort of a halakhic scholar even more than I am. He's sort of the rabbi's rabbi. Um, so we got together and we said, yes, we'll write this, this tshuva, this responsum. And so the challenge was, how? How do you put this together? Um, the first thought was, okay, well, let's look at various issues. Let's look at water issues, air issues, justice issues, um, energy issues, transportation issues, building codes. And pretty soon it looked more like an encyclopedia of Jewish law on these things and how we could apply it to today. And that didn't seem to be what we really wanted. What we wanted um, was something that was 
able to respond to everybody in every situation because Jews and congregations and schools and camps that are in an urban environment have different challenges and capacities than those same entities in a rural environment. And those communities that have systems in place, such as composting, have different capacity than those um, communities that do not have such systems of sustainable practices in place. So we couldn't be um, granular in what we required people to do because the waterfront was just so broad and one Chuva couldn't answer all of that. But we wanted to do two things. We wanted to make sure that we provided a sustainability ethic that was grounded in our tradition. And we wanted to provide a systemic approach that could be uh, embraced by everybody, no matter where they were. Um, where would we going to find those things? <laughs> that was one of the challenges. Um, and as we started looking around, and I guess the best way, in, in fact, to write law is not to know where you're going to be coming out, but to look truly in the texts and see what emerges you know, from them. Um, as we were looking around in our classic texts, we found an answer um, hiding really in, in plain sight. Um, so if you happen to be following along um, with the PDF that we put in that link, um, we can move to the, the second panel of the, of the PDF, which otherwise would be a PowerPoint, but I wanted to make sure I could see you all. So I didn't want to cover my whole screen um, with, the, with the PowerPoint. Um, and we found the concept in this phrase, Yishuv Ha'olam, or Yishuvo Shalolam. That is the, the habitability of the world, yishuv, um, habitation, settlement, uh, creating a, a place of sustainability, shell olam, of the entire world. And what's amazing is that I will confess, um, until we did this research, I had never heard of this phrase. But when we started looking in the texts, it's all over the place. It is absolutely there. We all know tikkun olam, and that's been since what the 1960s or 70s, a very powerful and um, um, sort of influential and motivating um, phrase of how Jews will live in this world, especially in the social context and social ethics and social justice. Well, Yeshuvo Shalom is in fact a frame which incorporates Tikkun Olam. It is in fact bigger than Tikkun Olam because it incorporates the physical, natural world, as well as the human um, social con con constructed world. Um, and as we'll see, I'll, I'll just, the tshuva has a lot more text than we'll be going through today. But um, the foundation of our tshuva is this concept of yeshuvo shalolam, or yeshuv haolam, habitability of the world. So let me bring you a text, which is actually from the 20th century, which is a sort of encapsulation of this concept. And we'll go back and look at some other more foundational texts in a little bit. This is from a text, a Mishneh Halachot. It's a 20th century text. Um, and it says the following. Everything is intended for the establishment of the world for Yeshu Shalolam, Yeshuvo Shalolam, and its continuity for the Holy One in his great love and kindness wanted the world to be established, which is to say foundationally, and it's almost like it doesn't need to be said, and yet sometimes it needs to be said, why are we, why are we here? Why are we created? And it might sound like a tautology or something that is very simple, but according to tradition, we are here because God wants us to be here. The world is verdant because God wants it to be that way. Right? We are not an accident. We are not an afterthought. 
We are not a mistake, right? We are here because we are meant to be here. We have purpose to be here. We are desired and we are loved. And that is in and of itself a motivating, self-justifying reason for us being here. And that will be the foundation upon which Yeshiva Shalalam is, is established, is based. Because if we are wanted and supposed to be here, and in the theological terms, God wants us here, and God wants the world to be able to sustain us, and God wants us to sustain the world, then that is our calling. That is our calling to Yeshiva Shalalam. That is our calling to make sure that we not only enjoy a, a world of verdancy and sustainability, but that we create a world of verdancy and sustainability. So we are here because God wanted the world to be established and wanted us to be here. And the, the text goes on. God did not create it to be chaos. That'll be a word we'll come back to in a minute. God fashioned it to be habitable. And thus we find that all the requests and needs that we pray for are only a means for the fulfillment of God's wish, the establishment of the world, which is to say, now this is what I like to say, this is like the foundational mitzvah that nobody's ever heard of, right? <laughs> this is what it's all about. This is what all Torah, all, all mitzvahs, right? all activity is based on. How do we, living up to this um, theologically constructed desire of God to have a habitable world with us in it, right? How does that guide what we do. Um, and that's the urgency and the essence of what we're all about. And all Torah is built on this desire to be here and to live in a habitable world. But we can go back a thousand years, 800 years or so, um, to see another um, more core um, articulation of this in Sefer HaChinuch. Sefer HaChinuch, like it's probably a 13th century um, book that reviews all the mitzvot of the Torah in their order. As you know, Maimonides reviews the 613 mitzvot and so enumerates the 613 mitzvot, but, but Maimonides being a sort of logician and a categorizer, um, put it in, put those mitzvot in categories which is a wonderful way to look at the mitzvot as well. Sefer HaChinuch put the mitzvot in their order of appearance in Torah. So he says, this parsha of Breshit has one mitzvah. The very first mitzvah is procreation. But I want to pause here because when people think about the mitzvah of procreation in Peru or review, you should be fruitful and multiply. It's often seen as having kids. That's the end of the mitzvah, having kids. Then there's a discussion, how many kids? Is it two kids? Is it one, one boy and one girl? How do, you, you know, how, how, how do you live out that, that mitzvah? But Sefer HaChinuch says, no, no, no. Procreation is not the mitzvah itself. Procreation is in service to the foundational mitzvah of Yeshuvo Shalom. So he says, the roots of this mitzvah of procreation, Peru come to teach us that the world is designed to be inhabited, right? Yishuvo shalolam, right? It's designed to be inhabited for the Holy One wishes the world to be inhabited. So this is, you can see where um, the, you know, the previous text um, came, got its explanation of God's desire to have this world be inhabited because Sefer HaChinuch is encapsulating it here. And by the way, we're going to go back another thousand years, another couple hundred years to, to see where he got it from. For as it says, God did not create the world to be chaos, to be tohu, lo tohu bra'a, but God fashioned the world to be habitable, la shevet yitzara. And he gets that from Isaiah. So 
what is he saying? God did not create the world to be tohu. That word, of course, is taken from Bereshit. We'll see that hopefully in the next slide, if I remember my slides well enough. Um, what God did not create this world to be chaos tohu, but rather, again, the original articulation from um, Isaiah as interpreted by our rabbis, but God created this world to be habitable. In case you think that we are a mistake, in case you think that we are not loved, in case you think that we are some sort of um, accident, no, no. Yeshayahu says, Isaiah says, and the rabbis are saying, we are here purposefully and beloved. And that should color everything that we do. And he goes on and says, it is a great mitzvah on account of which all other mitzvot in the world exist. So again, it's, you know, you, you open up Sefer HaChinuch, you look at the first page, you don't even have to like, you know, go halfway through. And you see Yeshivot Shalom, the first mitzvah upon which all other mitzvot are based. Everything else is in service to us creating a habitable world in which we can thrive because that is God's design. So before we go, I just wanted to just unpack a little bit um, Isaiah's phrase that, that God did not create this world to be tohu. So what's so bad about tohu? Um, you probably recognize this phrase. Anybody want to just take a crack at this? It's also right here. Just and Megan, Gary, you want to just, what, what does Tohu re reflect on? Well, so go back to Genesis 1, the very, very beginning, very first words of Torah. Breshit bara Elohim et When God began to create the heavens and the earth, in the very, very, very beginning. tohu vavohu. Oh, there's a vav that's missing there. Sorry about that. tohu vavohu, and the earth was complete wasteland, totally void, chaos, empty of any meaning, empty of any order, right? empty of anything that that creates a purposefulness of life. Tohu vavohu, tohu being one of those words of tohu vavohu, complete emptiness. Um, there's some wonderful translations of, you know, waste and want or something like that. Just Tohu Vavohu is absolute opposite of order and purpose and creation. So what God did in the very, very beginning of creation is rest um, from the rest, rest with a W, rest from this chaotic order. Um, the world as we know it today with seasons and life and regeneration um, and purpose and humanity. And the last thing that we want to do is go back to Tohu Vavohu. If there's one thing that is the absolute um, opposite of the purpose of life is to enter into Tohu again. And so, so Isaiah says, that's not what we're all about. We're not about tohu. God, God did not create us to be in tohu vavohu. God created us to be in order and creation. And so you can see elsewhere in Isaiah, you can understand just how profoundly um, antithetical to life tohu vavohu is. So he says, um, in explaining how God is going to absolutely destroy the enemies of, of Israel. So God shall measure it with a line of chaos. God will measure sort of their, their, their habitations with a line of chaos, tohu, and with weights of emptiness, of nevohu. 
That is what God will do to those God does not like is return them to this chaotic emptiness. And that's just the opposite of what we're called to do is to hold on to this purposeful, beloved creation um, with, with us in it and with us contributing to it. So Rashi helps us further understand what um, this uh, Isaiah phrase is all about. And, and Rashi explains, Lo tohu vera'ah, that this, this phrase from Isaiah, God did not create it to be chaos. What does that mean? In case you're wondering at all, what did Isaiah mean by that? Rashi said, God did not create the world to be chaos, to be tohu, but to be habitable. Ela lashevet, lashevet, to, to, to establish an establishment um, where all of us can live. Like that's where our homes are, right? To lashevet. That we should occupy ourselves with the establishment of the world. The hiyot asukim there's that phrase, that we should occupy ourselves with the establishment of the world. That's our fundamental calling, that there is a mitzvah to make sure that we establish a habitable world. And our greatest calling is to constantly be engaged in that activity. To be involved with, it's more than just to do, it's more than just busy work. It is to be fully engaged, immersed in, right? It committed to the um, the establishment um, of the world. So these texts hopefully give you a sense of this mitzvah that none of us ever heard about before, and yet underpins everything you know that that we're called to do. So I put this slide in there because sometimes when I speak about this, people say, oh, but Yeshuvo Shalom means civilization, means human beings. It, why do you say that it encompasses the entire world? And in all of my work in sustainability, um, I have been taught and I have come to believe that one cannot talk about society without talking about environment. One can't speak about the well-being of people without speaking about the well-being of nature. A uh, 110 years ago or so, Liberty Hyde Bailey, who was a, um, a sort of an agronomist, a horticulturalist um, in early 20th century America, had this wonderful line. He wrote a book called This Holy Earth, which speaks about the spirituality of people's relationship to the earth and our dependence on the earth. Um, and he has this wonderful line, which I can never quite quote exactly, but something like, we cannot um, take care of our fellow human beings if we do not know how to take care of the earth. That is the best way we can take care of each other is to make sure we have clean air and clean water, right? Um, that, that, we, that we have food that can be grown in, um, in healthy land, that, that we do not have sacrifice zones where some people absolutely are oppressed by um, by particulate matter in the air that gives them asthma, that we don't have the most privileged of us contribute the most to environmental degradation and yet suffer the least from environmental degradation, right? So we have to be able to understand that it is an integration between nature and people. So there's no such thing as just caring for people. Care for people without a healthy environment, you're not, you're not caring for people. So this, um, the Torah sort of tells us this and, um, and Nebravanel tells us this back in the in the fifth century, 
the, and he's talking about the commandment of um, sending the mother bird away if you want to take the egg or the, or the young bird. Um, so you can't kill the mother bird and the baby, um, you know, at once, and you have to send the mother bird away before you take her young. And he says the Torah intended by this, that existence should continue to exist. In other words, it's not just about a sort of morality about the feelings of the mother. Some some commentators think it's about the sort of maternal instincts of the mother and how emotionally, as it were, upset um, the, the the mother bird would be. So we so as far as um, humane behavior, we have to send the mother away. Abravanel saying that's not all. That's not all. What it is is this is an, this is emblematic of the need for society, for civilization, for nature to be regenerative. And if you kill the one who um, is regenerative and the generation that was that was born, we are now destroying society. So this is a, a emblematic of us needing to make sure that we preserve the world in such a way that it can be regenerative. For those children like the fruit bearing tree, the Holy One commanded not to destroy that which gives birth or produces fruit. Rather, send away the mother so the mother should produce other fruit and existence will be sustained and improved. That is why the end of the verse is so that it may be good for you and you live long upon the earth. So in that second sentence, when, when Abraham now was referring to the command not to destroy, or yeah, the second line, when, the, when he refers to us not um, being able to cut down fruit bearing trees, that you might remember is... Um, the the law that says if Israel is besieging a city and you know in a siege you have to sort of stay there outside the city you can't leave because otherwise everybody will leave or, or the siege will be, be over so you, you're stuck you're stuck you have to stay in your place you are limited to the resources that you have at your disposal even so even during a siege even during a time of war you are not allowed to cut down the fruit bearing trees right because why because commentators try to explain this all over the place, but essentially because the fruit bearing trees are regenerative um, entities and they, they preserve the future. There will be a future after this war. You will be needing to eat the other, even the, those who are vanquished will be needing to eat. You cannot in the midst of an urgent and emergent situation, destroy your, your capacity to live tomorrow. You can't sell tomorrow for, you know, for, for, for today. Um, so you have to make sure that you balance the needs of today with the needs of tomorrow. So the Torah says you're allowed to cut down non-fruit bearing trees, but you're not allowed to cut down fruit bearing trees. How do we balance the urgency of today with the needs of tomorrow? And this is what that, that, that mitzvah was, was teaching us. And so Abravanel says, yeah, look, you, you cannot destroy all regenerative capacity for tomorrow because of a desire or a need today. And why? And so he stitches together preserving nature with preserving self, because that is the only way that you will be able to live long upon the earth, right? That, that nature's well-being and our well-being are absolutely intertwined. So, and this other line, which also understands that um, we need to be able to preserve um, the world for, for generations to come. So this is from um, Seder Hayom, and it says, generation after generation, and the world remains forever. That's from Kohelet, which means that we all are involved in um, 
providing a sustainable world. And, and what happens when we do that? What happens when we live up to the urgency of providing sustainability for this world? And it's not just that we will um, assure our tomorrow, but that, um, Seder Hayam goes on to say, we become partners of the Holy One in the works of creation. That is, the Torah tells us that God created the world. And just to be a touch blasphemous, even if you do not believe in God, even if you do not believe in God's creation of the world, we know that somehow this magnificent marvel of a world was created. And it is now in our hands, literally, to determine whether or not the beauty of this world continues or whether it somehow um, falters. Uh, because we are so altering the capacity of the world, the um, operating capacity of the world to continue in the way that it has continued for um, hundreds of thousands of years. Uh, E.O. Wilson, the uh, entomologist in, uh, at Harvard, calls human beings a geophysical force now. We are of the capacity of hurricanes, tornadoes, earthquakes, uh, and we have the capacity to destroy the world as much as we have the capacity to continue to make it uh, verdant and regenerative. And if we do the latter, we don't just um, protect ourselves and preserve our future for our children and their children's children, which is, you know, Dianu, that would in some measure be enough. Um, but we also become partners with God, right? That is, that is, the highest compliment a Jew can offer another Jew, right? Is that, or another human being for that matter, that um, we become not just in God's image, which is sort of a passive um, attribute that we are given at birth, which is great, but that we act out that attribute and become an active partner with God. And we do that by making sure that we preserve uh, the, the health uh, and the capacity of the earth to bring forth life. So um, going down to the next slide. So the, all of this is to say, Yishuvoshelolam, habitability, that is uh, assuring the ability for life to thrive for this generation and those to come is the foundational mitzvah of Judaism. And one of the things that um, I know my husband and I would love, and we hope to do this with the tshuva that we that we wrote is to come back in 10 years, know that the phrase Yishuvo Shalom trips off Jews' tongues as easily as Tikkun Olam, right? This should be something that we know is what we need to do. Shabbat is in service to Yishuvo Shalom. Tzedakah is in service to Yishuvo Shalom. The Kashrut laws and healthy eating in service to Yishuvo Shalom. All of that, all that we do, all the spiritual disciplines that we undertake, um, all the questions we ask, all in service to Yeshuvo Shalom, creating a habitable world for this generation and those to come. And then there's that cautionary tale. Uh, the tradition certainly knows that we as a human species have great powers. And just as we are called upon to use those powers to sustain the world, we can potentially use them for, for, for destruction. Um, so we have this, uh, this text which says, every person who eats and drinks 
and benefits from the world, but only attends to their own benefit and enjoyment, such a person destroys the world. Which I think says a couple of things. One, even if you're not moved by this call to be God's partner, right? Even if you're not moved by this um, theology that says we are here for a great purpose and that purpose is to make sure we preserve this extraordinary, I'm looking up because I see trees in my backyard. You know, That's just so, it's so inspiring that we are here to preserve this magnificent blue marble, which I am almost, the more I look at, um, you know, cosmology um, and cosmogony, right? The, 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 the astronomy, um, the more I'm convinced we might be, if not absolutely unique, so unique that we will never in our, um, in, in the span of human existence ever be able to know that there is any life like us anywhere in the universe. And how humbling should that be? That if you think about the billions and billions and billions of stars, right? And the billions and billions and billions of years, we might be the only life form out here. And we might be the only sentient life form out here. And we might be the only sentient life form with morality in the entire universe. So how do we then destroy that which gave birth to us in a sense, which is, which is, and sustains us, which is, which is this earth. So even if you're not convinced by theology in the common and the sense that, you know, um, that is our calling, Fundamental morality says, how can you enjoy these unique gifts of this earth, which might not be found anywhere else in the universe, and then trash it? (laughs) That's just not a way that one behaves. You know, it says, if you only attend to your own benefit enjoyment and and understand how you're eating and drinking and benefiting from the world, you are destroying the world. And by the way, you will destroy the world. It's, it's not just a moral statement. It means if you only think of yourself, in fact, you will destroy the world, which returns me to a point that I just glanced over before. And I'll just sort of glance over it again now as well. But we know that the people who are most powerfully negatively impacted by climate change and environmental degradation are the people who least contribute to climate change and environmental degradation which means that you have to flip the coin over. Those of us who are most privileged and therefore in our homes, in our travel, in our, in our cars, in our energy use, um, in our consumption, in our food consumption, most contribute to environmental degradation and climate change are the ones who will be the ones who least are affected by it or at least last affected by it. That's not just. And we know that we want to live in a, in a just world. Um, I'm going to go two slides in case you're in case you're you're following. So I want to go to the slide which says our great challenge: how to achieve a habitability. So if we know that we have to live um, in a way that preserves this world, creating a habitable world, question is how do you do that? All right, now we've got we're let's say we're convinced we've got the theology or we've got the ideology, we've got the moral imperative, we're all on board with this. So now what do I do? How do I do that? Um, And um, what the Chuva posits is that the beginning of Genesis gives us two visions of um, creating a habitable world. Um, One, uh, just a little bit of a spoiler alert, one is a more um, egocentric model, Genesis 1, 
Um, and one is a more ecocentric model, Genesis 2. Genesis 1 really focuses on humanity, um, and Genesis 2 focuses on the system as a whole. So we're going to go through this and, and see, see what that, that is. And our, and our, again, our bottom line, spoiler alert, um, the Chuva argues that we lived in a Genesis 1 model of habitability and Yeshivo Shalom basically as mostly as a, as a West Western society, uh, Western influenced society um, for the past, you know, several thousand years. Um, And in in rabbinic um, rabbinic tradition also more or less saw Yeshiva Shalom in a Genesis one model. And what we have done now, we have to move to a Genesis two model um, because of moral com- imperative and because of the sheer numbers of humanity um, that require us to live in a different model, because otherwise we will um, we will overrun the resources of the earth and destroy it for the next generations to come. So let's just read Genesis one. Um, God says in Genesis one, verse twenty six, "Let us make Adam in our image. Let us make the human in our image after our likeness." And they shall rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the cattle, the whole earth and all creeping things that creep on the earth. Right. So in Genesis one, humanity is given the rule um, of the of, of the world and the rule of the roost. Right. Um, and one can imagine why that would be necessary, because in Genesis one, um, we have. God has wrested the world from chaos, made order, um, tried to put everything in place and plunked humanity down. And humanity has, if you were, I mean, just imagine you were the first man and the first woman and you sort of woke up as an adult <laughs> in this world. We take the narrative seriously for a moment, right? And you woke up in this world and you had no clothes and you had no language and you had no history and you had no um, society and you had no grocery stores. And you, ha- I mean, basically you have to create society right? You are cold. You are scared. There's darkness coming. You're not quite sure what that means. You want to know that you are in control of your environment. We all want to know we're in control of our environment. Ask a one and a half year old. I mean, they want to know that they're in control of our, the very first thing that we want to know is that we're in control of our bodies and we're in control of our environment. Without that, I mean, think of how anxious some of us get in new places. Um, even if we know we're very safe, we're physically safe. No one's going to hurt us, but we're in a new, we're a new environment. We're off to a new school and a new job. We're going to a new place. We've never been before, whatever it might be. We are anxious in new environments. So now take that and multiply it, you know, geometrically um, to, to the first man and the first woman, which is what I think the author of the, of Genesis one is doing and saying, what does that first man and first woman need, they need to know that they are in control of their environment, that they can manage themselves. They'll be able to feed themselves. They'll be able to clothe themselves. They will not become lunch while they go out and gather lunch, right? So it is not surprising that authors writing a text um, in societies that feel vulnerable would create a story that said, Habitability of the world requires humanity to care for itself first. 
Otherwise, we can't even speak about she habitability because there's no one to speak, right? So I think that the, the Genesis 1 story is saying humans must feel confident that they can care for themselves in a world that otherwise feels like it is it can spin out of control. So I do not condemn Genesis 1. There are t- two responses often to Genesis 1. One is to condemn it and say, oh, that is the reason why we, why we can't trust the Bible and Judeo-Christian thoughts um, on relationship to the earth, because we have a tradition in Genesis one of saying that humanity should be um, should be to dominate the world as we should dominate the world. And so some people say we have to, you know, forget Genesis one, because that is a license that provides, as it were, theological license to um, run roughshod over creation. I, I I don't think that that's that, that that's really what it means. And and on the other hand, I don't like explaining away Genesis once. Oh well, it doesn't really mean domination like that. It means stewardship and care. Um, and the reason I don't like that is because I think that is what Genesis two comes to tell us in response to Genesis one. I think Genesis one was being honest, and I don't want us to. Um, do midrash and sort of wave our hands and, and wave away the essence of the truth that humanity f- needs to feel in control of its bodies and its environment. We need that. The question is, how do we best do that? We can no longer do it in a Genesis one dominating manner. We've been doing that for a long time, but especially since the modern era of fossil fuels, we've been doing that digging up the world, blowing off mountaintops, um, spewing carbon, you know, uh, greenhouse gases into the, into the environment. Also that we can control the world around us. We know we can no longer do that because in fact, doing that is destabilizing the world around us. And in fact, being absolutely counter to what, to our goal, which is to create um, a world, which we can, which we can manage and can sustain us. So that's Genesis one. So then Genesis 2 comes and it has a totally different story, right, about humanity, totally different story. So let's just read a couple of verses there. When the Lord God made earth and heaven, when no shrub of the field was yet on earth and no grasses of the field had yet sprouted, right? So this is a radically different story than Genesis 1. Genesis 2, God built the levels of creation so that by the time humanity was brought onto this earth, there were there was dry land, there was sea, there was day and night, there was there were trees, there were grasses, there were animals. It was a smorgasbord. You know, I, I like to call it a shulchan aruch. That's the word we used in the tshuva. It's a shulchan aruch. It's a set table splayed out um, for, for uh, the, the, the male and the female. They were able just to go in there and eat to their heart's content and right, take, care of, take care of things as they needed to. Genesis 2 is just the opposite. There is a, um, there's a, as there's dry land, there's, there's no verdancy, there's no shrubbery in the beginning. Why? And this is just a stunning statement, which you probably have all seen before. Maybe you've even been stunned by it as I have, but if not, I hope you'd be stunned now because the Lord God had not set rain upon the earth. Okay. There's no water. Can't have life without water. And there was no Adam. There was no human to work the soil or serve the soil or tend the soil. That word um, in, in Hebrew, it means all these things to tend, to work, to serve it. It has, it has both a um, practical, very um, sort of, as it were, manual 
um, sense to it, but also it has, it's the same word that we use for service. It's like service to God, right? Um, um, a, a spiritual giving through our, through our actions. So in a sense, there was no rain, there was no water, and there was no human to both care for the earth and to serve the earth. Genesis 2 says, you know what, guys, you're not going to have a, a verdant world if humanity doesn't contribute to it. Genesis 1, you didn't need to contribute to it. It was there. Genesis 2 says you have to contribute to it. The essence of the world that we know, environment as we know, sustainability as we know, needs the cooperation of humanity. And while it might not have needed the cooperation of humanity when there were only 1 million people on the world, in the world, I can tell you now with 8 billion people, the, the, the verdancy and the health of the, of the earth is going to need the cooperation, the deep cooperation of, of humanity. So just one more sentence with uh, in, in Genesis 2. So, so what happened? So God brought waters to the garden. We have the four rivers of the garden. And God created Adam, Adam, this human from the earth, Adama, and placed the, the, the human in the garden. And then we still have that word again, to work, preserve, uh, to work, to serve, to tend, and to preserve it. To work it and to preserve it. And that combination of, fra- of words in that phrase, I think says it all. The earth is there for our use to help us create a dignified life. Um, that we are there to work it and to work with it, but also to be in servitude, as it were, in service to it. Um, and to protect it. We are also its guardians. We are also its guardians. And this is what um, we want to say um, in the in the tshuva is the Genesis 2 model of how we have to approach the earth. We can no longer think of it as a um, sort of a, just div- some sort of um, natural vending machine where we can just keep grabbing stuff out of it. And we can't just keep imagining that it is a trash bin. You know, once upon a time, we thought there, you know, you could just keep throwing things away. Well, we know there's no away. We know there's no there. It's all here. Can't do that. We know in the oceans, I don't have to tell you. I mean, if I just have to take this little aside, California is so far ahead in um, awareness of sustainability issues than the East Coast. (laughs) And I'm on the East Coast. So I know I'm like bringing coals to Newcastle here, you know, although I don't know if we can use that phrase anymore because we don't want to bring out coals anywhere. But nonetheless, um, I'm telling you what you you already know. Um, But we we can no longer live in a Genesis 1 uh, world where we just imagined we can take and we can throw out um, and we can use the earth um, without understanding that the earth will speak back to us. And if we don't treat it well, it will not treat us well. You know, there's, there's, there's that, that one image in, in, in Torah every now and then, and, and actually in, in, in the Vim and prophets as well, where it says, if we um, as a people in the land of Israel are not well behaved, if we violate God's promises and God's rules, right, violate our covenant, the land will spit us out. And, you know, I think often when we see something like that, um, we, first of all, it's an unusual um, phrase and sort of surprising. I guess it talks about diaspora. Um, And it seems like it's a punishment, but it's not a punishment. 
if we mistreat the earth, the earth will reject us. That is, it will not produce for us and we will be harmed. And if you're in um, any state of being able to respond, you will become an um, an environmental migrant. You will you will you will move. The world, the earth will spit you out, not because it's punishing you, but because you have mistreated it and it cannot provide for you anymore. And 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 you will then you will then move. And that's what we're seeing here. There are millions of people on the move today. Millions of them that are environmental refugees because the earth is no longer able to sustain them. And that is a problem on, in many, in many areas, which is why we need a wholesale global understanding that the, the health, the well-being of the earth equals the well-being of humanity. Um, so do you all, I know we're a small group. Do you all see the um, slides here? Otherwise, if not, I think I need to share yeah, you see the comparison of Genesis 1 and Genesis 2? Yep. Okay. For the recording, should I share any share share my screen anyway so people in the recording can see it? Or That's okay, because it, it'll be an audio recording. So if you refer to the slides, then people can take a look at the slides as they go along. That way you can still see our faces if you'd like. Okay, so you'll, we'll somehow give them the slides. All right, so I, what I did was I ran a comparison between Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 and sort of in a graph form so that we could really compare the two. Because remember, we want to move from Genesis 1 model into a Genesis 2 model. So Genesis 1. First, what's fascinating about Genesis 1 is that the world is still wilderness, right? It is, it is all created, but it has not become civilization. It is wilderness when, um, at, when the first man and the first woman were plunked down there. They are in a wilderness, which is why they need to be able to to, um, be given the gift, as it were, the blessing of, of dominion, um, although gentle dominion, right? They couldn't do everything. They could only eat they, grasses and all the rest. They couldn't, they couldn't kill animals. But nonetheless, they were given gentle dominion over the world so that they could manage um, their, their, their lives and build up a civilization. Genesis 2 is a world as a garden, um, which means gardens are, you know, manufactured by people. Gardens are not natural. Gardens are contoured and controlled. That's the kind of world we live in. Uh, we, there is no longer um, in any place in this earth that is untouched by um, by, by human um, technology, whether you know it's the pollutants that are in the air, whether it's the plastics in the sea, um, the highest mountains, the you know, deepest levels of the ocean. Um, we have affected the entire earth. Well, if we're going to do that, we better make it a garden and not a trash sheep, but we are in that Genesis 2 model. Um, in Genesis 1, the verbs are domination and control, right? What, what, is, what is humanity supposed to do? They are supposed to have domination and control. I know domination and control are nouns, but the verbs lead to those nouns. So any grammarian out there, I, I know you, you caught me on that one. Okay, I got you. You got me there. But but the, the verbs lead to um, domination and control. In Genesis two, um, the words are the verbs are work and labor lead to work and labor, um, and to preserve and protect. Radically different approaches to how we engage with the environment around us. Genesis one, the earth was made for humanity. Right, the, the God has spent the fullness of almost six days bringing this world into creation, establishing the smorgasbords. Everything is working properly, and then, and only then, does God bring humanity into the earth, into the world, and say, "Here, I'm setting this world before you." You know, 
it is for you. Um, enjoy it. There is a midrash, which um, I did not bring any slides, so I can tell you real fast. There is a midrash in Kohelet Rabbah, which says essentially just that, that when God um, created um, Adam, but he's now talking about it in, this, in, the, in the second version, the garden, nonetheless, God created Adam and took him around and showed him everything that was there. So it sort of blends Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 in this midrash, showed, showed Adam all the the, the, the trees and the garden that was there. And God says to Adam in this very famous um, Kohelet Rabbah Midrash, everything I have here, I, I, I created for you, but be careful not to destroy it. For if you do, there will be no one after you to set it right. So conflating Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, that Midrash nonetheless says we have an obligation to protect the world. Um, so one, the earth was made for humanity. On the other hand, in Genesis 2, humanity was made for the earth. Totally flipped, right? That is that we were brought here to make a verdant earth. That's what Genesis 2 said. When God began to create the earth and the heavens in Genesis 2, there was you know, dry land and there was no water and there was no human. And God took care of both. Four rivers giving us water, giving the land water, and bringing in a human. So we are here not for the fulfillment of our own spiritual desires and our own, you know, um, just enjoyment, but we are here as a contribution to the earth and to make sure that it is brought to the greatest verdancy and potential that it, that it can be brought to. Genesis one, the earth is self-renewing again and again in Genesis one, we read, you know, God made the trees and the, with seed, you know, that, that will, that will um, be able to produce after it. God made this with the seed. So it'll be produced after us. God blessed the animals. They should be, um, they should be able to procreate. God blessed humanity. They should be able to procreate. Everything in the Genesis one is self-renewing. It's just magical. This world is set on a course and it is just going and cannot there's no awareness that it can be destabilized or, or, or hit off its axis. The earth is made to be self-renewing and it is celebrated as self-renewing. In Genesis 2, the earth requires inputs of water and humanity. And it needs the, the gardens don't, if you don't tend to your garden, <laughs> it's going to become a mess, right? Gardens need constant attention and constant renewal, constant care and love. And in Genesis 2, that's what we're told, the earth cannot be neglected. It can't be seen as something that we just take for granted. It cannot be neglected. At this stage of our existence, 8 billion people on this precious planet, we need to actively manage the earth well. It will not preserve itself or preserve us if we take it for granted and we don't manage it well. Um, in Genesis 1, um, the human is uh, godly, right? Made in God's image, which is wonderful, but that also gives a sense of um, sort of um, entitlement to dominion. And, and the break on dominion is a little bit harder. The, how, do you, how do you bracket dominion is a little bit harder when you feel that you are made in God's image. Um, in Genesis 2, we are made from the earth, right? One way of acutely translating is the human from hummus. Um, and we are more humble. And we know intimately by our name, Adam and Adama, human and earth, that we are intimately intertwined. And that as 
we treat the earth so the earth will treat us. That that bonding is there. So we should remember that because that will guide our decisions and how we treat the earth. In Genesis 1, the human is sovereign, right? They are given these blessings to be fruitful, multiply, and um or do et aris, right? And and subdue the earth. In Genesis 2, um, the human is gardener. I'm going to spell this for you in case you can't see it because I'm just so tickled by the way I, I see this word. It is G and then a bracket U and then A-R-D-E-N-E-R. That is gardener but put a U after the first letter G. So what this is doing is conflating the concept of we are the gardener who has to take care of the garden um, in Eden. And it includes that concept of protecting it because it has that, that U in, in there. So we are the gardeners. We are the ones bound to take care of the garden and we are the ones bound to preserve and protect the garden. That's who we are. We're not sovereign doing as we wish, what we wish. We have a task. We are bidden by this task by and by God's calling to make sure that we take care of this garden, which if we do, will we'll take care of us. A couple more of these comparisons. Genesis 1, the human relationship to the earth is extractive, right? That is, enjoy. <laughs> it is there for you. Take what you will. It is an extractive um, relationship. Uh, there's no sense of giving back in Genesis one. It's all about benefiting from the earth. And again, that is what we needed to hear in that era. Is and, and as as if we were the first man and the first woman. I am not condemning that. At certain times, that is the way it has to be. In certain times of our of our um, species existence, and when we were when we were small and didn't have a big footprint. But now we are large and we have a big footprint. And so Genesis 2 comes to tell us that the human relationship to earth is generative, that it is up to us to make sure that the earth can be healthy enough to continue its regenerative capacity. That's what we have to do. We are here to make sure that the earth is cared for so that it can preserve life and preserve us. In Genesis 1, there is almost no understanding of consumption being limited. It's enjoy, right? Enjoy the earth, (laughs) do as you will. Um, In Genesis 2, consumption is limited. It's only limited by one tree. (laughs) So that's the only one. But nonetheless, the concept of limits is introduced in Genesis 2. And that has a huge um, intellectual um, um, impact on us as we read the story. It is not a free-for-all smorgasbord, um, whatever you want. There are limits that we must abide by if we're going to make sure that everyone can live in a sustainable world. In Genesis 1, there's no concept of exile or the earth being able to be destroyed. Um, it's that's The whole earth is there, and Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, can um, do whatever it is that that, that they wish. Um, in Genesis 2, there is a concept of exile and destruction. And I think there's something very powerful about us understanding that there is, there are limits 
and that there's the capacity for destruction. Because if you don't know, you you won't behave properly. You know, we we have to teach our children not to touch the hot stove. There are consequences to touching the hot stove. We have to understand that there are consequences to um, mistreating the earth. There will be exile, you know, um, environmental refugees, or there will be destruction where there's really even no place to go, and we will and we will suffer. Um, and to sort of wrap it all up, it's to say that in Genesis 1, it is an egocentric model where it is about humanity and the preservation and well-being of humanity as if what they did does not affect the well-being of the earth. So it is egocentric in that regard. In Genesis 2, it is ecocentric. It puts the system at the center. And the human is in service to the system. So that is the um, overview of Genesis 1, Genesis 2. And taking it back to Yishu Voshel Olam, the idea is that for much of human existence um, and Jewish tradition, Genesis 1 model, that egocentric model, is the model that provided the guidance as to what do we mean by habitability. Habitability meant that we wanted to make sure humanity survived and that humanity thrived and that humanity was able to manage and be masters of the environment um, for themselves so that they could best take care of themselves without truly understanding the immense scope of harm they could do to the environment. And so we lived that way for a long, long time. But there was a tipping point. Over the past 150, 200 years, as fossil fuels came into existence and started to degrade everything as pollutants and chemical pollutants and PFAS, the forever drug that the forever, um, you know, pollutant that is everywhere that we're, that is harming all of us everywhere. As all of that comes to be, we realize that we can no longer um, simply care for ourselves as if our behavior does not negatively affect the environment. And what Genesis 2 tells all of us is that we need to be ecocentric, that we are here as partners in this great community of nature. And that while we have special talents and, um, and standing potentially because of the power that we have, um, we are really here. If we want to survive and thrive, we have to make sure that the earth survives and thrives. And we have to do it equitably. It's not enough for some of us to be okay and for some of us to suffer, especially for some of us to suffer because at the same time, some of us are okay at their, at their expense. So that's the, uh, the idea that we have to live the Yishu Voshel Olam model in the Genesis 2 um, capacity. And that's the takeaway of all this. So the, the, the challenge for all of us then is how do we truly embrace this ecocentric Genesis 2 model where we understand that our well-being and the earth's well-being are intertwined, that we all have to live equally in in good relationship with the earth. Um, And how do we translate that into behavior? But that is the essence, that is the rubric of the Genesis 2 Yeshuvo Shalom model. Um, Let me just pause there. I don't know if anyone wants to offer any comments? I had um, a question that I'd love to go back to for a little sure. bit. Sure. 
sorry, my video is off. I don't know why it's not cooperating for the moment. Um, I wanted to go back to the idea of not being able to care for our fellow humans without first caring for the earth. And to think a little bit about the prioritization of mitzvot, what that means practically. Because when it comes to the expenditure of resources, I'm sure that you've experienced the conversation of whether or not a community or a foundation is willing to invest in the future of our ecological health, our Earth's future, before investing in humanity. So how is it Jewishly that we go about reframing the conversation or convincing people? And is it our job to convince the people who hold the purse strings or make the decisions that it is a vote for humanity? It's in humanity's best interest. And in fact, a Jew, our Jewish imperative to care for the earth even before we care for our fellow humans, perhaps, because that is what sustainability is founded on. Did I get yeah. it right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. I would, I, I agree with you. I would just tweak it a little bit. I think we have to get away from the um, language of hierarchy, you know, first do this and then do that. They, the caring for the earth and caring for people are so intertwined that it's not one or the other, and it's not which one first and which one second. They both, they, they, they are both existent simultaneously. Um, so if the question is how do we loosen the purse strings of, of our Jewish foundations and other foundations and others who are trying to figure out um, how to better help people, um, that it's a it's a great question. Maybe you can sit down and take the Genesis one Genesis two chart and and sort of explain the chart to them and see if that helps them see that the one model, which is what they might be um, laboring under still today, the Genesis one model, is doing a disservice to people. The very the the very focus of probably what they say is there you know, that their, their target for their foundations giving. Um, so it, I mean, I learned this most, and maybe this is not going to be as helpful, but I learned this most actually from the world of economics um, and, and Herman Daly and other people who talk about sustainable development. Um, and the model that, an image that got me, that made me truly understand it, was um, Herman Daly, who's an, an economist, he used to work at the World Bank, um, said, you know what, it doesn't make a difference how big your, I guess it's called a trawling net is as you go to the ocean. Now, people think if I've got a one mile long net or a two mile long, the longer my net, the more fish I'll, I'll, I'll pull in, the more, um, the, 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 the more profit I will make and, and the better everything will be. Yes, but you can have a hundred mile long net. And if there are no fish in the ocean anymore, because you have destroyed the ocean, denuded it, you know, um, just fished it to, to ex fish the fish to extinction. It doesn't make a difference how much money you have, how much investment you have, how big your boats are, how long your net is. 
the fish aren't going to be there. And if the fish aren't there, the people aren't going to, to eat and the people aren't going to eat. They're, they're, going to, they're going to be harmed. So we somehow have to break this hierarchy, either or, maybe this, maybe that. It is absolutely together. And the quote that I said, um, di- by the way, didn't say first. It said you can't do one without the other. So they're, they're, both, they're both simultaneous. So I don't know if that helps you or not. Um, I'd love to hear a response from you. Yeah, I, it helps a lot. I, I think that when I consider when I consider the way that people spend their time and their resources on Meets Vote, I do want to be generous to other people's um, approach to Meets Vote and forgetting about my own and when I'm in conversation with other people that there is a rather zero-sum nature because we are all limited in our time and in our resources. So an example that I might give when I'm thinking about this that isn't a monetary example is that uh, Gary, who is here with me, he works uh, on some initiatives uh, in um, something in which I'm also involved with the leadership uh, called One LA, which is a connective um, group of various (laughs) denominations of different faiths, uh, faith organizations all across Los Angeles who collectively agree on a list, a very short list of issues, which they'll jointly lobby is the wrong word, but they will jointly work together to, um, to work with local civic leaders, um, to ensure that those issues are properly addressed um, in the area. And I was trying to picture what it would mean, for example, for Jewish organizations to try to front load, try to try to push forward issues of ecological health, right? And to say, to try to make the argument, this actually is a human need, right? This actually does uh, this actually is of enormous import to humanity, and we can't do all the other human things that we want to do without this hand in hand. So that's what I'm grappling with a little bit is just the, the idea. It's not always necessarily about money, and it's true that we need to do both, and I grapple with the fact that there is a sometimes a zero-sum nature, sometimes a, a true limit to the resource um, and to the capacity that we have to either give personally or to um, to to lobby or to push forward. So um, I, I really appreciate your explanation and, and the uh, desire to limit the hierarchy uh, of, of the giving. So those are great statements. Um, real quick, we have like three minutes left, I think. Um, one, I want to say, uh, yes, somehow we have to do it all. And that's why there are, I mean, a lot of people mean a lot of problems, but a lot of people also mean there are a lot of hands that can, that can do the good work. Sure. Um, so we, thank goodness there are people who are talking about education, uh, police reform, um, elder care, um, making sure we have more nurses, you know, in the hospitals because now they're, you know, they're, they're leaving because of COVID. But I thank God there are people who are doing that as well. Um, but yes, foundationally, all that is going to be harmed if we don't get this environmental sustainability thing right. So that gives me a sort of a, an opportunity to do a quick segue into just a couple things that came out of the chuva. That is, what are the takeaways? As I started at the beginning, we, we created not um, granular things like, you know, cloth diapers or, or, you know, disposable diapers. That's just, you know, 
not going to be relevant to everybody. But we came up with some systemic issues. And I think this goes to the very point that you're making. Um, the first issue we said is, uh, or responses is, um, respond with urgency. We have to understand that we are in the past the 11th hour, and that we have to respond with urgency. And that means um, an attitudinal change, personal behavioral change, and systemic change, because we need all of that to get it done. Um, and two, and this is, I'll probably end with this. Um, and two, there needs to be in every Jewish institution, a person who is responsible for the sustainability portfolio. And that gets to your point that we can still allow other people to attend to some of the other critical issues that need to be attended to on a, on a, on a daily basis. But we will also have sort of overseeing that somebody who's got a sustainability portfolio on the board of every institution or in the management team, the lead management team of every institution, whether that person is a staff person or whether that person is a lay leader, it doesn't really make a difference. It's just that we have to be as responsive to the sustainability issues that affect us and our institution, just the way we are about the finances of our institution and the you know, CEO or the rabbi or cantor of our institutions, right? So if there is somebody who sits on the board and every month or at every meeting has to respond to sustainability issues, whether that has to do with the building or with your land or with your energy use or your food consumption or your waste or transportation or your parking lot or whatever it might be, because each institution will be different um, in the sustainability issues that rise to their, their highest priority. Nonetheless, that institution will be focused on sustainability, which will affect everything else in that institution, which will eventually affect everything in the larger community. So if you do nothing else, two takeaways, my last up 30 seconds, remember the, ver the words, the phrase, yeshuvo shalolam, it should become as familiar to you as tikkun olam that we have to take care of the full habitability of the world. And in your shul and everywhere else you go as well, by the way, make sure there is someone who holds the portfolio of sustainability at the highest level of administrative management um, and reports back to everybody and is held accountable by everybody to making sure the institution uh, creates sustainability plan and lives out a sustainability plan. We are so uh grateful to you and indebted to you. And um, thank you for the reminder of what a gift this earth is to us from God. Yeshivo um, Shalom is a beautiful phrase to remind us of that. It reminds me of this idea of autonomic functions, that there's so many things that happen in our bodies that we don't think about all day long, breathing and our heart beating. And um, the earth is just beneath my feet. And today rain is falling from the sky in Los Angeles. And I am more grateful for it because you pointed out that all of it is a gift and um, gifts sometimes need to be guarded, as you point out, sometimes with you and tended to. So thank you for refreshing our sense of gratitude and even sense of urgency uh, that we need to tend to it. And uh, may all of the work that you do inspire <laughs> and help us to sustain our earth uh, for the next generation to enjoy. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is a very inspirational talk. Thank you so much. Thank you. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site. 
or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.